Hi, everyone. Welcome to Status Check with Spivey, where we talk about life, law schools, and law school admission. My name is Derek Meeker. I'm a partner at Spivey Consulting, and I am delighted to be back to host another podcast episode. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Max, a former client that I worked with last cycle on his law school transfer applications. Now, Max is a wonderful success story. He was a 1L at the University of Idaho Law School. He applied to several top 14 schools. He had several acceptances, including among them, Harvard Law School, where he is now a 2L. But this podcast is much more than a secrets to my success as a transfer applicant discussion. It is that in part, and I promise that Max will have some excellent insight and tips for anyone thinking about transferring. But this is also a remarkable story about overcoming formidable challenges and odds. It's a story about perseverance, finding inspiration in the midst of significant loss, and reinventing oneself. Max is a veteran, a first-generation college student, who nearly failed out of college the first time. He worked in a steel mill for several years, returned to college at the age of 32, and is now one year away from becoming a Harvard Law School alum. Max, welcome to Status Check. Hey, thanks for having me, Derek. It's great to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate you being here, as I know our listeners will too. How are you feeling today? Uh, today's a great day. I think it's the first 60-degree day of spring in Cambridge, so it was nice to not have to throw a jacket on. It's been a little chilly here this winter. You know, you wake up, you see the sun, and you're just in a good mood. Yes, that's so funny because it's about the same in LA. We've had a lot of rain this winter. It's probably 60 degrees here, but to us, it's still chilly. So <laughs> I'm still wearing a jacket. So what did you do this morning? Just take us through a typical Tuesday as a Harvard Law 2L. Yeah, so Tuesday is actually pretty light for me. I only have one class this semester. So I get up, go to my copyright class. I love that class. And then usually there's like a panel or something going on. So like, for example, next week, they're doing a panel with some former clerks from the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. So I'll be going to that next Tuesday as well. And then I usually just go to the gym and try to catch up on schoolwork. Wednesdays and Thursdays are my sort of big lift as far as academics goes. So I try to get some reading done and just do some studying. Nice. All right. So take us now back to the beginning, back to your childhood. Did you ever think that you would be an attorney or a Harvard Law School student? Hell no, Derek. Absolutely not. I grew up in a suburb of Seattle, Kent, Washington, and we didn't have a lot of money. You know, my parents, they did the best they could. They always pushed education on me, but I don't think they really understood what that meant, what that looked like, and what going to a different college has meant. They were of the mindset, yeah, just get a degree and it'll be fine. It doesn't really matter what it because that's sort of the, how they were raised. And I remember there was a kid in my high school. I'll never forget this guy. He was in all my AP classes with me, and he ended up getting accepted into Harvard as an undergrad, everybody's like, oh my God, this guy's crazy. I can't believe somebody that we know is like going to Harvard. And all that is to say that it was such a massive achievement for somebody from that community, from the area I grew up in, to get into such a prestigious institution that I never thought I'd be there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, part of the reason why I wanted to work with you and I think I connected so much with you is I grew up in a similar town and very blue collar, lots of challenges and just going to college was an accomplishment for someone there. So I understand that. And as a first generation college student, it's also just getting to college is just the first step, right? There are often a lot of challenges learning to navigate it. There are often socioeconomic 
challenges and just figuring things out when no one has done it before in your family. You got accepted to the University of Washington, but you did face many of those challenges. On top of that, you also lost your best friend to an overdose early in your college career. Yes. So as far as like those challenges go, I knew I had to do FAFSA and apply for things. You know, there's all these deadlines. I missed all of them going to college the first time because I didn't really know what to do. I remember one time, I think my mom came up and visited me in like October and she was like, Max, I'm getting letters in the mail from FAFSA. What is that? And we opened it. It was like, you should have had to apply like way earlier to get the inside to get like emergency loans and all this. And so in that regard, yes, being a first gen was tough because we didn't really know what to look out for. And maybe we weren't as diligent as we could have been at looking into what we needed to do. But when you don't know, you don't know. And then there was a lot of drugs and things that were rampant in my friend group. I was fortunate enough to not partake in most of that because I saw what it was doing to them a lot of the time. And yeah, one of my friends, this was in 2004, 2005, 2006. And my friend had joined the army right after high school, went to Iraq and Afghanistan, and he was suffering from a lot of PTSD. And he came back. And I remember one of the last nights me and my friend saw him at the bar. He was completely strung out on heroin. We were worried about him. And then I get a call not soon thereafter that said he was gone. And as a young 21-year-old man who hadn't really maybe suffered a lot of loss at that point and then trying to deal with college, it's really sort of an awakening about what you're doing with your life and what does it all mean? And like things are just when they're taken from you the first time you experience it, it's tough. Yeah. And when you lose a close friend, and I know from personal experience as well, especially at a young age, it can be both debilitating, devastating. It can also be motivating. Can you share a little more about how it impacted you either negatively or positively? So I'll talk a little bit about both. So first, the negative ramifications, like for me, I definitely drank heavily. And then I think that I coped with probably playing video games. Back then I played a lot of World of Warcraft and between drinking and World of Warcraft, I think that's the main reason why I never did any schoolwork. And then the positive impact of the things is I went to the gym constantly and I got in pretty good shape. I swam like an hour a day. I was lifting weights and I maybe had some of those same addictive tendencies in the gym and in dieting and gaming and in alcohol. I was just like looking for any sort of escape from the reality of what I was doing at the time, which was supposed to be college apparently, but I didn't want to think about that. And so I was doing all sorts of other things. It obviously affected your academic performance. And in fact, if I recall correctly, you got put on academic probation and you also withdrew, right, on a couple of occasions. Yeah, so I actually withdrew from three quarters and I got put on academic probation maybe the whole time I was there. My academic performance was terrible. I just don't think I was ready for college. I touched on it a little bit earlier, but in high school, I did all sorts of science, AP classes, math classes, and I loved math and science. And then for whatever reason, when I went to college, I was like, yeah, you know what? I want to do business. And I took all these business classes and I took all these classes of things that I just wasn't that interested in at the time. And I just didn't like it. It wasn't for me. I don't think I had the skills necessary. I don't think I had the discipline. I don't think I really had the motivation to do college because I didn't know what I wanted out of it. In fact, it's funny. I remember telling people, they'd ask me like, what do you want out of college? And I would say, I just want a high paying job. And that's not really a good answer because it doesn't give you that motivation of like what you're passionate about or what classes to take. So yeah, I struggled heavily. Yeah, right. On top of, of course, all the personal stressors in your life. So it would have been so easy to quit. What motivated you to keep going? 
I want to say maybe it's partly because of my pops. He was always a driving factor in getting an education to me. But that's not to say that we didn't sit down and have a lot of conversations where he would be like, what are you doing? He's like, I know you're smarter than this. What is wrong? And of course, when you're young and you're doing all sorts of bad things, you're ashamed and you don't want to talk to your parents. And you know, I don't really want to talk to my friends about all the things going on in my life either. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll figure it out. I wish I had a better answer about what motivated me to finish, but I think I just didn't want to quit. It was almost like a sucking cost fallacy. God, I've been in here for over four years now. I need to get something out of this place. Amazing. You found it inside of you and you made it across the finish line. As you said, I think barely across the finish line, as you put it in one of your essays. So funny story. I remember I was actually in summer quarter at University of Washington and I was about to go drop that quarter too. And I went into my advisor. She's like, instead of dropping, you already have enough credits. You could just graduate. And I was like, Perfect. Let's do that. So instead of dropping, she just withdrew and graduated. And that was that. And you graduated. So first in your family to graduate from college. So what happens next? Because again, you got the degree, but I don't think that meant everything was now fine. What do the next few years look like? This was a booming economic time of 2009. So it was already bad for everybody. And here I am, a young man, questioning my own sort of place in this world and like what to do. And it's tough. I remember I was living back at home. My dad buys and sells cars and he details and fixes them up. And so I was kind of living at his place, helping him out do that. And I was still playing a lot of games. And I remember one day he sat me down and he was like, Max, you got to move out. He's like, I don't know what you need, but you're not really progressing in life. And you have by this date to move out. And my dad is serious about these things. I knew that if I was not, my stuff would be on the front lawn and I'd have to figure it out. And so like, Graduated with a degree in speech pathology and ideology. So I actually ended up becoming a living caregiver for a man in his late 20s with autism. And I was also doing some other things. I volunteered at a children's hospital with a speech pathologist for maybe like once a week for like a year. And then I did a ton of odd jobs. I worked in retail. I think I worked at Buckle at the mall. I worked as a refractometer salesman at some, might as well have been a call center. I worked as a meat cutter. Oh, and I got fired from like two or three of them. So I had some growing to do. Yes. So you discovered that you were not great at meat cutting. Yes. And so ultimately, I remember during this whole time, my best friend would come over and visit me on the weekends and we'd stay up way too late till two or three in the morning. We have some beers and we'd sit and say like, man, like, what are we doing? We're smarter than this. How do we get ahead in life? And we would sit and just talk about this for hours. Where do we want to be in five years? It's interesting because when you're kind of stuck in that space, you know that you want to get out of it. You know that you're capable of it, but you don't know how. You have no idea like where to even start. And so for me, I essentially was Googling, how do I get money to go back to college? I knew that I needed more education, some skills, maybe some perspective about what hard work means, maybe some discipline, maybe some whatever, some money to go back to college. And I just happened to stumble on a Google search that led me to the army. And that was the real like catalyst, I think, in my life. And so this is 2012, right? Three years after you graduated from college? Yeah, this is late 2011, early 2012, where I'm like doing all this research, meeting with recruiters. And my parents are not thrilled at this point. Like they're so anti-military. I remember I was like scared to talk to them about it. And I talked to my mom first, I think. And she's always a little more open-minded about some new things. And so she was like, ah, cool, if that's what you want to do. But they were both like, don't do combat arms, don't do anything. And I had done the whole recruiting process at this point. I scored phenomenally on everything. And I wanted to enlist in the military, even though I had a degree. I wanted to go active duty. I wanted to ship out next month. I wanted to get away. And then the recruiter was like, you have a degree. We're not going to make you enlist. Why don't you become an officer? 
And I was like, what is that? Leadership? I don't know the first thing about it. What does this even mean? And then I was like, okay, how long does it take to become an active duty officer? And he's like, the process will probably take us like nine months to a year to ship you out. And I was like, no, that's way too long. He's like, well, you could join the reserves. We get you out of here three, four months. And I was like, done. Get me out in three months. And so I was at the MEP station signing my contract on the dotted line. I remember as soon as I signed, I walked out of the room and my dad was sitting there and he's like, you just made a huge mistake. I was like, I guess so, Pops, but we'll see. <laughs> Parents, right? One hand, they're telling you they're going to throw you out if you don't do something. And then <laughs> <laughs> that was good for me, right? Like I'm motivated. So like somebody telling me they're going to kick me out. I'm like, all right, bet. I'm going to figure it out. But not everybody has that reaction. Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. Sometimes it really takes being at your lowest point or someone sort of giving you that shove to really compel you to take action and to do something different. And I think you don't have to know exactly what is going to be on the other side of that. It's like gravity, just momentum, just making a change and putting yourself in a different environment and taking some sort of action. You're taking a step. It's going to bring other things as a result of that. And so you keep going. And I think that's essentially what happens for you, right? But the other part of this is in the midst of this, so you'll have to explain a little bit, after joining the Army Reserves, you also take a job at a steel mill. So tell us how that factors into it. Why did you do that? Yeah, so I got back from basic training officer school and I was a reservist. And so I essentially still needed to find my own full-time career. I came back from training and I was actually working as a chauffeur now at this point while in the Army Reserves and ran into a little trouble with the law. Maybe had my license suspended for reckless driving or whatever for a few months. I ended up working at Starbucks because I was like, what's a good job? You can work in Seattle area without a license. And I was like, of course, I can ride my bike to Starbucks. There's one on every corner. And they actually ended up putting me at one that's 11 miles away. So I was riding my bike an hour to work back and forth every day for a few months, got my license back. And then, I don't know, I was at like a family function or something. Maybe my mom was like, hey, Max, I know you're still kind of looking for a career. You know, your uncle has worked at Nucor Steel for like 30 years. She was like, why don't you talk to him about what he does? And I know that nepotism is maybe not like everybody can't rely on it, but he at least put me in contact with the recruiting people how to go about the process, what they're looking for in their employees. And he was like, yeah, go apply. And so I did, I applied and they really liked the fact that I had military experience because it's a steel mill. They were like, we need somebody that cares about safety at least a little bit here. And I took a job as a crane utility at Newport Steel. And that job was great. I loved that place. What did you love about it? There's something about being a part of American Steel that it feels like you're part of something bigger than yourself. We were making steel that was like going into bridges and buildings and Something about going to work and putting in a hard day's work every day. And the guys that I worked with, yeah, there was drama like there is at any workplace. But man, they were some of the hardest working guys you'll ever meet. We'd work 12, 12 and a half hour shifts, rotate days and nights. And these guys would just be in there, just grinding. And I'd struggle working 48 hours a week. And there's guys working 72s. Just, hey, we'll get overtime. Give me as much work as we can. And to me, that really put in perspective what it meant to work hard what it meant to complain about your job conditions and all this. And they treated me well. I had no complaints about that job. And if I hadn't figured out that I wanted to go back to school, I'd probably still be there because that place was a great opportunity. It's another parallel with us. I'm sure I shared with you when we first met and started talking. My dad worked in the steel mill. My grandfather worked in a steel mill. You can see the mill outside of our living room window, right? It's a small town. The mill is sort of the backdrop. The mill, the church, and the football stadium are like the three pillars of the American triad right there, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was the same with my dad and grandfather. Such an incredible work ethic. And I'm so grateful that they passed that on to me. So obviously, this is a really grounding experience for you. And you're enjoying it. 
But there's a moment though. So the first break at the steel mill is when I went to Afghanistan, really. So halfway through my time at the mill, my unit called me up and it's time to deploy to Afghanistan. So I was in country in Afghanistan for nine months. And I remember thinking to myself, while I was working at the mill, even before this, I was a little bored at, on night shifts. I wasn't as mentally stimulated as I wanted. At that point, I'd worked up to training on the crane and other things. It just wasn't as mentally stimulating. And so when I went to Afghanistan, the job I was going to do was called aerial precision geolocation. And I remember I had to do a full month-long course prior to going to a country with all the people I was deploying with. And it was like kind of math heavy, kind of tech heavy, talking about all sorts of different like technologies. And I was really good at it. I was like the top of this like 30 person army class. And I felt great about it. My commander was like, Matt, you did so good. She's like, we're going to put you in charge of training when we get in country for everybody coming in. And I was like, okay. I was like, maybe I should start doing more schoolwork. And so I was in Afghanistan. I was flying around in King Air's 700 hours when I was over there. And then in my downtime, I was taking online classes at I think Excelsior online college in New York because the army's tuition assistance, they had some deal with the military. I took a project management class. I took like a physics lab. I took some, I don't know, just some random things. And I loved it. I remember sitting in my bunk, bombs would be going off. People would be shooting mortars on base and I'd just be reading my little project management book. So then, okay, fast forward, I'm back at the mill. I took a, I'm making air quotes right now, a promotion to furnace utility. And this was sort of the big move at the mill. This was the real catalyst for me because up until this point, I'd been working in the shipping department, operating a crane. But my uncle had worked in the mail shop and everybody at the mill was like, hey, if you work at the mail shop, you're kind of one of the cool guys. You're dirty. You work the longer hours. You work on the big hot furnace. You're just, they're just like the nitty gritty, like the heart of the mill. And I took this job and the camaraderie is extreme, but the work environments are also extreme. And you're working on a 3000 degree hot, dingy furnace. People are getting injured and the real catalyst for me, I was walking into a meeting. I got up at 3.15 a.m. that day. I'm in the room at 4.45, ready to start my shift. We're doing our pre-shift huddle. And, you know, you're looking around the room and my uncle had just lost a, half his finger like a couple months prior. There's guys that are injured all over the place. There's long-term health problems all over the place because, you know, working day and night shifts isn't good for your health. Breathing in toxic chemicals, you know, they provide you all the PPE, but it's just like being in that environment. It can't be good for you long-term. And I remember thinking to myself, God, I don't want to seem like a wussy for quitting, but I don't know if I can hang with these guys for like 30 years. These guys are savage, just like insane worth ethic and just nitty gritty. And I was like, I don't know if I'm cut from the same cloth. At that point, I was like, I need to get an education. I need to get out of here. I need to get back to school. I love doing it in Afghanistan. I have to figure something else out. So you have this moment, both thinking back to the classes you were taking and how much joy it brought you when you were over in Afghanistan and recognizing that long-term, maybe this working at the mill isn't the healthiest or best option for you for many reasons. And so what decision do you make at this point? Again, I was sitting in my dad's living room and we were talking about going back to school. And I was sitting there and I was debating between electrical engineering and computer science. I was like, I love doing the science class. I was good at math and science in high school. I need to get back to that. And so I ultimately chose to go back to school for electrical engineering because I thought it had a little more staying power than maybe computer science did. Even though I was in Seattle, I knew Amazon employees were making tons of money out the gate or whatever. I just thought electrical engineering sounded more interesting to me. And also it still gave me a little bit of a foray into computer science. And so I chose to go back to school for EE. Okay, so this is an important point where I'm just gonna take a slight detour to say, you had this moment when everything changed. And I just wanna pause there for a moment because when I 
advise applicants on personal statement writing. That's one of the things that I always talk about is access the moments when everything changed. And I have to credit the teacher that taught me that Allison Singh G was an amazing teacher at UCLA where I took writing classes. And that was something that she always talked about. So thinking about those moments when something changed, right, that compels you to take a different path or to do something differently. And so we're going to come back to this uh, because you and I had an interesting experience around this when it came time to write your personal statement. But that is just like the quintessential sort of experience to point to and then to write an essay about. For me, you said access in these moments. And it's difficult to know when that moment happens. But I remember quitting the mill the night that it happened so vividly because I had made arrangements at Eastern Washington University to go back to school. And all I had left to do was go to work and quit. And I went to work that night. I was getting cold feet. It was harder than breaking up with any girl. It was harder than anything because I'm sitting there and I'm thinking through when I first got the job, how happy I was, how much I liked my coworkers, how my family told me, like, how can you give this job up? It's so good. And I'm thinking, okay, but like, how do I move on? I want to go back to school. And so I paced around the mill for hours. And I remember I went into my boss's office. His name was Paul Bonner. Great guy, former Army Ranger. I sat down, I said, hey, Paul, I was like, look, this has been an incredible opportunity, but I got accepted into Eastern Washington University and I have to quit. I remember the look on his face. His eyes got huge. And he was like, what? Because nobody quit that job. When you got a job at Newport, people were so excited. My heart was racing. I wish I would have had a heart monitor on or something just to see my heart rate while I was quitting because that was a hard moment for me. So I understand finding those moments. I've been there several times. I had my first job out of law school. I worked in the attorney general's office in Ohio. And of course, my parents just thought it was the greatest thing but I had to get out of Ohio. And so me leaving that job was just crushing to them. And then when I left my job at Penn as the Dean of Admissions to become an actor, <laughs> yes, you can imagine the reaction, not just from my parents, but from the Dean of the law school. <laughs> ah, yes, yes. Yes, so I get it. It is like breaking up. But just before you turn 32, you are now going back to college for a second degree. You decided to go into electrical engineering, as you mentioned. So now you go back and you're a completely different person, right, than you were as an 18-year-old, as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old in college the first time. You're killing it. Not only are you majoring in one of the most rigorous disciplines, but you ultimately graduate magna cum laude. Why was it different this time? I knew exactly what I wanted out of it, and I enjoyed the heck out of it. I loved going to class every day. I was excited for the opportunity. I knew what I wanted out of the college. I had done research. I'd figured out a career plan. I was meeting with academic advisors. I was just present in the experience. I wanted to be there, not because I thought society told me I needed to be there or my parents told me I needed to be there. I knew I wanted to be there. I knew what I wanted to learn, and I was just so passionate about it. And I wasn't struggling from many of the same things that I was when I was younger either. I'd had time to process the death of my friends. And I mean, even since that, I'd lost two other friends in the interim. I'd started finding healthier ways to cope. I was happier with who I was as a person. I wasn't gaming. I was just a healthier person, both mentally and physically. And I think it really showed in my academics. It's just so important, I think, for people who are in college right now and thinking about applying to law school. I always encourage students to take some time off before going to law school anyway, right? Doesn't necessarily have to be a 12-year <laughs> detour. But I just feel like unless you have had exposure to what it means to be a lawyer and you have really specific goals, and sometimes there are people in college who have had that, but 
I feel like a lot of times people just don't really know. And it's such a different experience when you have a clear goal in mind and you know what you want to do and you're focused and you feel that spark and that passion for it. So I think that's such an incredible insight to share. So how does law school come into the picture then? You're back in school getting your second degree. How does law school come up? Yeah, so kind of serendipitously, when I went back to school for my degree in electrical engineering, my end goal at this point was to get a master's degree from one of the state schools. So either University of Washington or Washington State University. And I was doing great. I had like a 3.9 plus GPA for the longest time. And so I was starting to research grad programs and all that. And University of Washington has a joint JD and master's of electrical engineering. And I remember looking on their master's electrical engineering website and being like, what is a JD? And what kind of crazy person would need a law degree and an electrical engineering degree? And then I started to research that a little more and what kind of career paths you would go down. That was the first time I'd ever learned that being a patent lawyer or an intellectual property lawyer was a thing. And I started looking into that and I was like, this could be really cool. And the more I started to look into it, the more I started to get really excited about a career path at doing intellectual property law or patent law. And that was really the catalyst here where I was like, oh my God, I really want to go to do a joint JD MSCE program. And I'd never heard of it until like the day I started looking at grad programs. So now you decide you're going to apply to law school. Basically, you have all the pieces in place, right? You can't get rid of that first undergraduate GPA, unfortunately, because of the LSAC policy, which I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with, right? When you go to college, all of your courses, they take all of that and calculate a cumulative GPA. But then if you go back and get another degree or take other classes, they don't count that. It's part of the GPA, right? Whatever it was, your magna cum laude GPA is not part of your GPA as you're applying for law school. Here I was, 32-year-old, or at this point, 34-year-old Max with a magna cum laude electrical engineering degree, but I was applying to law programs as if I was the same 22-year-old with my 2.2 GPA. Yes. Now, that being said, of course, they are going to look at the transcript. And you're actually, as far as that situation goes, when someone has a lower GPA, you're in as good a position as you can be because you now have a proven track record, a current one that you can do the academic work in an incredibly rigorous discipline. So you've got the honors degree in electrical engineering. You're a veteran with experience in Afghanistan. You're a first gen college grad, and you have this compelling story of overcoming challenges. What happens with your law school applications? I did them all myself, which was probably the first big blunder, but I did a bunch of research and I applied to all programs that had joint JD MSEs. And that was probably my bad, honestly. I didn't realize the value of what school you're going to for a JD. And I probably could have did a little more research there. So I applied to like University of Washington, Notre Dame, Penn, UCI, Florida, Stanford, all these law schools that have joint masters of electrical engineering and JDs. And I got summarily rejected from every single one of the JD programs. And I got admitted to almost every single one of the electrical engineering programs. Part of that was because this was, I think, right when GRE scores were becoming more accepted to apply to law school. And I had a very good GRE. I had studied for it like all summer. I was ready to apply with just GREs. But then some of the law programs required the LSAT as well. And I studied way less than I should have, barely at all, just to be able to have a complete application on LSAT. Maybe I got confused about something. I don't know why I ended up taking the LSAT, but I did, and I did extremely poorly on it. So I think that might've tanked me a little bit as well. But ultimately the best I did was I got waitlisted at Northwestern the first time around. And then come June, 
is when they finally kicked me off the wait list at Northwestern, gave me the rejection. And that was actually maybe the best thing that ever happened to me, getting rejected from all those law schools. Because immediately after getting rejected, I was sitting there in my living room in Cheney, Washington, going like, what am I going to do? My dreams are crushed of being a lawyer. I guess I'll just go to be an electrical engineer now, which is still a good alternative, right? So I actually did some research into local law schools around me. And I was like, what else is still up? And University of Idaho popped up. And I hadn't, they weren't even on my radar until June. But I called them up and I was like, hey, are you guys still taking applications? And they were like, absolutely, send one in. So I go on LSAC website, I apply. Two days later, I get a call from the dean saying, I want to interview you. And we sit down and talk and I get an admit the next week. But now think about the world at this point. This was June 2020. COVID was raging. Every school was online. I had just done my last semester of electrical engineering program online. It also fortunately happened where the army called me up and said, hey, we need you down in Georgia for a year. So I actually ended up getting accepted to Idaho and having to defer it for a year to go down to U.S. Army Cyber Command at Fort Gordon, Georgia. Wow. Okay. I just want to pause for a moment to fine point a few of these things because there's so many important nuggets in here, right? Let's go back. Important to note for future applicants, taking the GRE, yes, it's an option. I will say in our experience, it is often a more challenging road (laughs) to get accepted to a law school with a GRE only score. You certainly can. There are people who do it, but it does seem like it's a harder road. So that's something to be mindful of. But also... If you take the GRE and you do really well, as you did, Max, but then you take the LSAT, it almost cancels out the GRE. Law schools are going to look at the LSAT. They still have to report it, and it's what they know. The LSAT is still, at least right now, still the king. (laughs) And you have to send in both scores. If you've taken it, you have to send the score. That's right. But it's also just amazing to me that you got rejected at every school you applied to. And here you are thinking your dreams are over. But you don't give up and you're open-minded. I just love that you were open-minded enough to say, what other law schools are around me? Because I'm passionate about this and this is something that's important to me. So you didn't give up and you didn't do the thing, well, I'm just not going to go to law school. You saw that maybe there's another path to get there because I know what my goal is. And I think that that's incredibly admirable. Doing research into law schools online is tough. Like you said, I was sitting there, I got rejected and I was like, what do I do next? But if you research on Reddit or something, is it okay to go to University of Idaho Law? You're going to see law school admissions or these other law school forums, and they're going to be like, hey, you know, if you don't go to a T14, screw you. I was getting a little bit down because I was looking online. But then what I actually did is I looked up some patent attorneys working in Boise and the surrounding areas who had went to University of Idaho Law. I actually reached out to them, and they got back to me like the next day. And I was like, hey, look, here's my situation. I'm thinking about going to Idaho Law. Like, can you tell me a little bit about your life and career? And is it going to be okay if I don't go to one of these other schools? They were like, man, absolutely. We have good careers. We've had good lives and we provide for our families. And like, everything's okay. You know, we have maybe better work-life balance than a New York lawyer might. And so that really put me at ease, talking to some actual attorneys who had been there and done that and not just getting caught up in the elitism of the online forums. Yeah, it's really frustrating and demoralizing. I always tell my clients, if you say, I can only accomplish my goals if I go to a top law school, T14, or wherever they draw the line, I always say you're giving up your power in a sense. Now, look, I didn't go to a top law school, but I worked at one. I very much understand how this works and how many doors open. So I get all of that. But nonetheless, you still have so much power of your own in terms of 
the networking you can do. And there's more than one path to accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish. I think that this is just a wonderful illustration or hopefully an inspiration for other people who are listening to understand that and to be open-minded. So you enroll at Idaho then a year later after your deferral. At this point, were you already thinking about transferring from the get-go or tell us about that? How do you approach your first semester at Idaho. I was thinking about transferring from the get-go. I didn't know where and I didn't know really why and what that meant for me, but I knew that I wanted to do as good as possible and at least keep the door open. At that point in my life, I sort of realized just having options was always really beneficial for you because of whether the economy collapses or whether, you know, something changes in your circumstance. I just liked having opportunity. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to do the best I possibly can here at Idaho, making opportunities for myself here with alumni or whatever, but I'm also going to leave the door open for transferring. And I remember telling people, even first semester, they're like, what are your plans? And I'm like, oh, I'm thinking about transferring. And they were like, to where? And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll apply to all the T14s or whatever. And then people would look at me like I was crazy, but I had a goal in mind. You would come to the conclusion that this is what I want to do. And you talk to attorneys who had graduated from Idaho. So you can do what you want to do, but you still are not necessarily giving up on the greater goals. You're looking at a number of the schools that you had previously applied to. And you do incredibly well your first semester, right? You're at the top of your class. Number two, I got to give credit to the guy who beat me the first semester. <laughs> if you're listening, Ryan, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're obviously doing well. So the possibility of transferring is looking perhaps more attainable. Also, you end up getting a summer associateship at a big law firm as a 1L. Now, I just wanna take a moment here to acknowledge this because aside from working at admissions, I also worked as a recruiting manager for a big law firm. And it is so incredibly competitive to get a summer associate position as a 1L at any school. Even at the top 14 schools, the percentage of 1Ls who get a big law job is pretty low because there just aren't that many firms that hire 1Ls. Now, granted, you had an electrical engineering background. And so for firms that have IP practices, that is something that is critical. That is a distinguishing factor. I will acknowledge that. But nonetheless, it's still incredibly difficult. How did you do this? Uh, so we had just got done with finals after my fall semester of 1L. My PLI patent bar binder had been sitting on my shelf for over a year now. I was like, I want to get a 1L big law job. I want to maximize my chances of getting a job coming out of Idaho and all these things. And so I was like, I bet I could take the patent bar in the month time that I have off between semesters. And so literally the day after my last final from fall, I spent all of that December and like half of January until class is starting up studying for the patent bar. And then I ended up taking the patent bar and passing it the day before classes started. And then I just started applying to firms. I actually went to the career services office at Idaho. They gave me some alumni. I reached out to them, got an offer from a mid-law firm in Seattle. I reached out to a professor who had worked at a mid-law firm in Salt Lake City doing IP. They gave me an offer as well, doing mid-law there. And then I'd also done a whole bunch of direct applying to all the V50 to 90, whatever firms. I maybe put out 30 or 50 applications there. But what actually ended up getting me my job was my friend, she knew this firm called Haynes Boone because some Instagram influencer that she followed had used Haynes Boone to represent her in a matter where like she wasn't able to use her own name on her social media anymore. And she was like, hey, this firm is cool. Like they represented this girl that I follow. You should check them out. And I was like, okay. 
So I just like randomly went on their website, filled out the application and their headquarters were in Dallas. And I didn't know that outside of New York, I believe the largest congregation of 1L Summer Associate positions are in Texas. It was like very fortunate that they were in Dallas and I applied and they have a very heavy IP practice there too. The stars aligned on that and I ended up getting an offer and accepting for Haynes Boone Dallas in my 1L Summer. It was crazy. Okay. So now at this point, you have your amazing grades and you've got the patent bar and you now have a summer associate position at a big law firm. You're ready to apply to transfer basically, or at least that's when we meet because you reach out to us. So before we talk a little bit about the transfer application, just quickly tell us what are the pros and cons at this point that you're considering in terms of whether you should transfer? Well, the biggest con for me was money. Obviously, University of Idaho is fairly cost efficient. Going to these schools is now all of a sudden fifty dollars to $60,000 more a year. And then also there's, besides the career stuff, I loved University of Idaho. I loved the people there. I had great relationships with my professors. I had a wonderful friend group. I was happy at University of Idaho. And I don't know if I can really put a price on that. Giving up all of that to chase your dreams, I think is sometimes difficult. But on the other side, I kept remembering why I went back to school in the first place and the things that I was passionate about. And I kind of knew what it felt like to give up opportunity and to not push yourself and chase those things that you're actually capable of. I wanted to reap everything out of this opportunity that I could. And so I knew I wouldn't be happy unless I transferred or at least tried to. That's where I was at. Yeah, you didn't want to have any regrets. So we begin working together. And for many of the reasons I've already talked about, I resonated with your story. I believed in you. I didn't really know what was going to happen, right? We had our challenges. I remember asking you, what are my shots? You used the very evasive language. You're like, well, we've never seen any candidates like you before. And I was like, I know, but <laughs> I respect it. Right. But I also met there were lots of positives and never seeing a candidate <laughs> like you, right? I honestly thought you would have a couple of offers from top 14 schools. I wasn't sure about, we'll say maybe the top six or seven, right? We were strategic about, let's make sure you're applying to several across that spectrum. But yeah, it was really like, we weren't really sure what to expect. Now, so we're coming back to the personal statement discussion, because this is important, both 1L applicants and transfer applicants. It is the centerpiece of the application, right? Obviously, as a transfer applicant, your grades are the most important factor, your law school grades. But there still needs to be an interesting story for them. And you also have to talk about why you're going to law school, what your goals are, and why you want to transfer to that school, right? Now, to me, after talking to you, there was no doubt in my mind you had that epiphany, the moment when something big shifts for you. And that's when you were working at the steel mill. It's also like, how many applicants applying to law school worked as a furnace utility man at a steel mill, right? So it's also this cool differentiating factor. Not only did you not really want to write about it, because the first drafts that you sent, I was like, where's the furnace story? You didn't even include it on your resume. You had actually removed it from your resume. Why did you resist that? I guess I just don't associate that sort of blue collar background with these elite schools. I didn't know how that would be taken. And I didn't know really how to translate those skills into something that they would care about. And when I applied as a 1L, I think I wrote my personal statement about my military career and being like a commander in the army. And then you told me to write you a personal statement about the mill. I replied back to you with five short stories, I believe. I have them here about my time. And I wrote five little short stories that we could expand. And I gave you my hardships at University of Washington. I gave you a very interesting story from when I worked at the Children's Hospital about working with one of my patients there. I gave you a time about like seeing death and destruction in Afghanistan and my deployment. And then I gave you some things about what it was like to go back to school as a non-traditional student in electrical engineering. 
And I also included a small blurb about the steel mill. And that's the one that you were like, let's use that. And I was like, what is this guy talking about? But here's the thing, and this is what's so important. First of all, it's such a unique and cool experience. The other thing I always tell people is think about when you meet someone for the first time, what is it they are interested in hearing about? And I remember you also saying that when you were interviewing for your 1L summer associate jobs, that the interviewers wanted to hear about your experience at the mill, which really surprised you. Oh, yeah. I guess you're right on that because what happened was, I was at University of Idaho. This was when I was applying for jobs. I was to my friends and I was like, I'm just going to send an email with my resume to Cravath just as like a joke. Ha ha, you know, whatever. And they actually emailed me back. And the partner who interviewed me was super interested in my time at the mill. And I was like, man, I was not expecting that. And so there you have it. The thing that people want to hear about, the moments when something changes, that's what you want to tap into. Here's what's hard about a law school personal statement. You have to also be able to connect that to the bigger picture. How does this connect to why I want to go to law school? Or how do I use this story or this experience to convey why I would be a great attorney? So that's the goal. And that can be tricky. But in your case, it was so clear to me, right? Because the mill, the experience, what you gain from that, and then you have this epiphany about you want something different. It motivates you to go back to school. You go back to school for electrical engineering. That's how you discover law school. It's this whole journey that all connects. So it was there. Now, I really wanted to read the first paragraph of your personal statement. Oh, I have it up right now. I was going to see if you wanted to do that. Awesome. I'm so glad you're open to this. So let me just read the first paragraph of this personal statement. Because what I advised to Max was take them into that world, take them into your world in the mill working on the furnace. It's 3 a.m. when the furnace gets jammed again. My boss calls me over the radio. Max, get up there and get the debris out. I respond on it and head over to the table to assemble my equipment. Like Iron Man suiting up for battle, I began by putting on my wrist and forearm protective sleeves, then my protective hood and denim jacket. Over that, my Kevlar jacket. Next, I move on to my head and face accessories, securing my in-ear and over-ear hearing protection, hard hat, an air-purifying respirator with a sealed face mask. Finally, I slide my hands into cowhide gloves. I'm ready to step on to the furnace. I just got chills. I love it so much. Who doesn't want to keep reading that? What happens next, right? <laughs> Why so much gear? Right, it's just... I would love to keep talking about this, but we have to move on. So ultimately, you have a killer personal statement. And we do use, you mentioned that while you were in Afghanistan, the uh, experience of being there and being surrounded by people who are getting killed, that becomes your diversity statement. You have a very compelling diversity statement. Nonetheless, so we have all these amazing pieces in place, but we had three or four addenda to write. So it still wasn't going to be an easy case here. The academic probation, the withdrawals, and the overall GPA that you had to address. We had the LSAT. We had to address the LSAT because it did not align with your GRE score or your recent academic performance. And you alluded to the character and fitness issues. So I was like, I really believe in this guy, but we got a lot of stuff here. So what are you thinking at this point, right? So you submit the applications. What are you thinking about your chances? Obviously, at this point, I got my 2L grades back. I was rank one at University of Idaho. I had six Cali awards. I was at my big law summer internship. You know, there was nothing more I could have done, I don't think, personally, to get as good of application as possible. I was also very hopeful that I would get at least a nod in the T14 at Georgetown because a very good friend of mine from University of Idaho who was ranked four in the class got accepted early admission into Georgetown. She had gotten in 
And I was like, okay, great. Because one of the things I was worried about, besides all this other things that we've talked about, was that there's this sort of illusion or stereotype that the transfer process is also heavily reliant on school rank, transfer school rank. Yes, it absolutely can be. And so Idaho's ranked 140 something. And I was like, gosh, is that going to be okay? And so I was worried. I was very anxious. I did not get a lot of sleep that summer (laughs) waiting for these to come back. That is true. It can play into it, the school rank. But the story... And what happens is the first acceptance comes and it is Georgetown, Georgetown. And I remember you're elated. You're like, oh, my God, I would be so absolutely thrilled to go here. hundred percent. I would have been on board with any of the schools that accepted me. And then the second one, Berkeley, right? Yep. One of the top two ranked IP programs in the country. Oh, yeah. When Berkeley got back to me, I was riding high. I was like, okay, we're in the game now. We got two. Like, that means it wasn't just a fluke. And so I was very happy. Right. Then you got the call for an interview at Harvard. I think I got accepted into Michigan first. At some point, I got accepted into Michigan as well. And then right around that same time, I got the interview for Harvard. Yes, I got the email for that. Now we're like, oh, my God, this is actually a real possibility. And so... You go through the interview. What is your recollection of that? Me and you had talked a little bit about it. I did some research online. And that day, I probably could have been a Harvard historian. I was like, whatever they want to know, I'm ready for it. Because there's a few stories online of people being like, oh, I didn't know how to answer these questions. But I remember one of the things I found was that if they ask you, do you want to go here? Or how likely are you to accept? You say 100%, but it was true for me. Like if Harvard wanted to give me a shot, I was ready. And so they asked, one of the things that I thought was a really interesting question that I was struggling with, and I don't know if we're going to talk about this now, was essentially like, they asked me why Harvard? And for me, I already had a big law job. I already was doing the things I wanted to do with my career. And so that question really, I struggled with a little bit to come up with a good answer of, yes, what would Harvard do for me that I didn't already have? And for me, it was about clerkships and network and exploring areas of the law that maybe I didn't know even existed. And so what better place to do that than Harvard? Yeah, I also remember in your personal statement, you just alluded to the effect of just doing something that maybe no one else has done before in a sense. So doing something like that also means that you pave the way for other people, other family members. I think you mentioned advising your sister, being a mentor for her in terms of pursuing higher education, which I think is really important. I love that part of your application too, that this isn't just about me. This opens up opportunities and allows me to help others. Yeah. And on that note too, it was definitely, if you go to Harvard, then now your kids are now legacies and now you're, you are exposed to this Ivy League life. And it's about more than just setting up my own well-being. It's about, you know, making sure that my family is now set up and maximizing opportunities for me and my future children or whatever the case may be. And not saying that I wouldn't have great opportunities from Idaho, the resources and the legacy thing is real. So you just you maximize opportunities for your life and set yourself up the best as you can. Yeah. And they get exposure to both experiences and can make their own choices based on that. So then you get, I'll never forget the email that you send me is like in at Harvard, 500 exclamation, all caps and like 500 exclamation points after that. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) Who was the first person you told? I was dating a girl at the time and I called her and told her first because she had been with me every step of the transfer process. She had been great the whole time encouraging me. And so I called her up. I think I FaceTimed her and I was like, I got into Harvard and she was just like so over the moon with it too. I don't even know if we really understood what that meant. And then the next person I called was my buddy. And he was like, my God, he's like, I can't believe you did it. He's like, the only person that we know who ever went to an Ivy is that one kid I was talking about earlier. (laughs) He still brought that kid up. I mean, I was in shock. I didn't know what to do. Yeah, but (laughs) you had to figure out really quickly what to do. So 
Now, just take us quickly through, because this is an important part for people who are thinking about transferring. So you get admitted, you make the decision, you're going to accept the offer at Harvard. And this is, I think, in early July. So you've got maybe four to six weeks. Take us through that process and the logistics. So essentially at this point, I'd given up my lease at University of Idaho. I had an apartment there, but I was in Dallas at the point, but all my stuff was back in Idaho. And now I'm realizing that I'm going to Boston and I'm currently in Dallas. And so on top of figuring out all the logistics of moving to a city that I've never visited, you still have to enroll at Harvard. You still have to get classes. You still have to do all like the medical enrollments, vaccines, registrar's office, financial aid office, and figure out how to pay things. And then on top of that, you're doing all of the EIP stuff and researching firms and doing interviews. And I was working at the time as well. So joy quickly faded into anxiety as I was waking up to like 30 emails a day and just like a wild amount of logistics to try to figure out. And Harvard does a great job of organizing it. They give you all sorts of people to reach out to, resources to do. They give you very nice maps of here's exactly what you need to do. But it's still a lot of work and you're still grinding. And so essentially what happens is I end up pretty much just dumping all my stuff in Idaho, either donating it or selling it quickly. I moved into a dorm at Harvard Law. They have dorms specifically for the law students and just tried to make the move as light as possible. Because I was doing EIP, I wanted to make sure I got it with a good firm and leave time for some of the other things as well. EIP for those who don't know, early interview program, right? Yeah, to get a job for your 2L summer. So in the midst of this, you're also interviewing. Were these mostly remote interviews at the time? They were all remote interviews. So that helped. It did. It helped a lot. And if you were in the Boston area or New York area, I think some of the firms did offer you to come see their firm as well, especially if you got like a callback. But because I was in Dallas, I just couldn't make the trek. Yeah. Now you start your first semester at Harvard. What would you say was how you expected it to be and what surprised you? I expected people to be smart here, but what I didn't expect or wasn't expecting was the level of passion that I see from people. I remember I took first semester with admin law and like a big nerd, I was sitting in the front row and I had made the conscious decision that if I was going to come to Harvard, I was going to maybe put academics on the back burner a little bit and focus more on my social circle and meeting people and networking and trying to enjoy some of the fruits of my labors. But there are a lot of people here who aren't like that. They love the law and they're so passionate in a way that's like, even on my best day, if I studied and did nothing else, I'm not sure that I could even compete because they just love doing it. So I was so shocked. And also it was kind of awesome to see these people that just dove in to the law because that's what they love to do. And so that level of passion, I think, was incredible to see. But on the other side of that, too, one of the things I wasn't expecting is maybe I was expecting more like just overall, like people that are so serious. But there's a lot of people here who are also enjoying their time. I didn't meet them so much my first semester, but eventually I got into the Harvard Law Drama Society, which puts on a play every year. And those people are all incredible. So anybody coming to Harvard, join Parody. That's my plug. (laughs) Okay. So I guess you touched on this just a little bit, but I was going to ask, what would you say was the biggest challenge in making the transition as a transfer student? And what would you do differently? Or what advice would you give to someone on how to approach their first semester as a transfer student, whether at Harvard or anywhere else? Yeah. So leaving your friend group behind and coming to a new school as a 2L is tough because I think that everybody also has a different attitude. Their 1L year of oh, everybody's new, we're all looking to bond and make friends. And then also many of the classes at a lot of colleges across the country are in sections. And so you see a lot of your section mates in classes every day and you just sort of run with the same crowd, I would say. But when you transfer as a 2L, now you're in classes with all random people every day. You're going to large institutions that have hugely big classes. 
So I made the mistake of taking all sort of bigger black letter classes and doing some journals and things that were all strictly academic focused. But if I could give recommendations for people who maybe want to make friends and are maybe a little more social, take some more working group classes, some classes that are maybe a little smaller, a little more intimate that you could sort of meet people and interact and talk with people. And then also as far as picking what school to go to, I think there's something to be said for Harvard and Georgetown because they have such a large transfer class that there's a larger amount of people in the same boat as you. And my friends that transferred to Georgetown, she said that the transfers are close. There's more of them. There's just a better community of people that are sort of experiencing the same thing you are. And just like that at Harvard, my best friends are all transfer students. Great advice. And then I know we skipped over this because I got so excited when we started talking about your application and your acceptances. But is there other advice or tips you would give just as far as the transfer application process itself? Oh, man. I think that the biggest thing is if you're listening to this and you're thinking about hiring a consultant, I don't think that it's a passive process. I think that you have to be active like me and you were going back and forth. And I gave you my life story. I was forthcoming and wrote my heart on those pieces of paper. And when you kicked it back, it said, I want something different. Like, okay, fine. But I still like wrote as much as possible. And I think that me and you probably had 20 or 30 different drafts and back and forth. And you were giving me all sorts of feedback. And we started early and we worked often. And I think that if you wait till later in the process, you don't have as much back and forth. You don't take ownership of the transfer process. It's really going to to bite you. And to me, I was like, I want everything out of Derek's brain that I can possibly squeeze out of there. And so I was just trying to be as active as possible in the process. And start the process early. Okay. Where are you spending your summer? I'll be at Damaris LLP in New York City. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> they do uh, patent litigation. They're right in Midtown Manhattan. And a whole bunch of transfers are going to New York as well now. So it's just going to be a good time. Amazing. Congratulations. All right, Max, I know we have just a few more minutes. So a few last questions. After this long and remarkable, sometimes very challenging journey, just tell us what it means for you personally to be less than a year away from becoming an attorney and a Harvard Law School alum. Uh, man, it's so hard to put into words because I'm constantly reminded of where I was at 10 years ago, maybe having run-ins with the law, maybe not really having any motivation or direction, not knowing where the next paycheck is coming from, getting fired from jobs, and you're just so down and you can't really see what the future holds for you. But I have this just like incredible sense of relief that it seems like if I did nothing else right, I didn't let all these experiences and things that at the time felt like life shattering bring me down. And I just kept my head up and I kept trying to look towards the next thing and make the best of it. And all these things that I thought were like so bad in my life ultimately culminated into this thing that was like really good. And it get me to a place where I can have any opportunity I want, do anything. And I just couldn't be more fortunate to be here. And I'm excited to start working and start making money and start, you know, taking care of my family. All these things that people want to do that I know it's like very cliche to say, I'm just excited to be able to do those things. So that's sort of what it means to me. Very well stated. And you brought me to tears. Not the first time that this has happened either in our interactions. Max, I want to thank you so much for being so open and for sharing your story. I know that many listeners are going to get so much out of this, whether they're pre-Ls, zero Ls, one Ls, veterans, first college, first gen college students, anyone who's in the throes of challenges. I think what you just said is so inspiring. And I just want to thank you. This has been such a joy. I've loved working with you. I've loved getting to know you. Any final words or thoughts? No, nah, hey, I appreciated you working with me too, Derek. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So thank you for everything you've done. This has been great. Thank you. Oh, and are you still rehabbing a 
like a 1968 Barracuda or something. <laughs> yeah, restoring a 1970 Barracuda. That's me and my dad. That's one of the first projects I'd like to do when I'm done with this whole education journey, get settled, get a garage. Probably wouldn't happen in New York, but we'd love to restore that car together and get it back on the road one day. All right, I'm waiting for my opportunity to drive the 1970 <laughs> Barracuda. I'll call you up when it's done. All right, thanks again, Max. Thanks everyone for listening. 